Welcome back to Damn Good Brands. Today we have a little bit of a change of pace. I'm speaking to Benton Crane. Benton is the CEO of Harmon Brothers, the company famous for their super viral pooping unicorn squatty potty ad and the perhaps equally famous and equally scatological poopery commercials. Harmon Brothers are a fantastic and fascinating company and one that I admire very much. There's a tremendously admirable level of quality to all of their work, and their videos are downright hysterical. They're also incredibly well-crafted and in many cases have reached pop culture status, such as the case of the pooping unicorn. In this conversation, we dive deep into the creative processes and strategies behind the creative comedic genius of the Harmon Brothers. All of this and so much more on today's episode of Damn Good Brands. Now, without further ado, here is Benton Crane, CEO of Harmon Brothers. I think your company culture, and uh, I did give this a read, so there's a lot of great gold in, uh, in From Poop to Gold, which I definitely recommend the listeners check out. But um, I was particularly fascinated by how you guys are able to maintain your culture because you have such a creative and intelligently creative culture, but you also give people great amounts of flexibility and a lot of your kind of cultural values are based on trusting adults to just get the job done, so to speak. But um, it sounds like you, when you approached the company, you were able to bring a sense of structure to all of that wonderfully chaotic creativity that flows. So would love to just get your overall approach to balancing such strong and fun and freewheeling creativity, but also adding a sense of, of structure to it. What are some of the keys to, to doing that? Yeah, yeah, that's a really great question. So like you mentioned, my background is in data analytics. You know, I started my career out as a statistician. Um, I, I worked at the Census Bureau out in Washington, D.C., and then later I spent a couple of years in the Intel community, kind of jumping from, you know, Intel agency to Intel agency out there in Washington, D.C. And so when I joined up with the brothers, Neil, Jeff, and Daniel, they, had, they were coming off of a big success at Ourobrush, where they kind of pioneered, you know, YouTube marketing, essentially. And, and when we joined up, it was for the Poopery campaign. And so I brought this data analytics background. They brought this, you know, world-class creative background. And, and when we married those two together, we kind of created, I like to call it this kind of virtuous cycle where the data, what we're learning from the data is feeding the creative process. And then what we're seeing in the creative process is informing what we test next in, on, on the data side. And it becomes this really beautiful cycle where we keep learning and applying, learning and applying over and over again. And so as people look at our track record and, and they see, you know, back in our early days, poopery, squatty potty, um, purple mattresses, chat books and so forth. And then they see us continue those type of successes you know, Lumi is our, our most recent one. Uh, they're, last year when we joined forces with them, they were at about $1.5 million in revenue per year. This year, they'll do probably somewhere in the neighborhood of $35 million and they're still growing. Um, and so we, we've just been able to kind of repeat these successes over and over again. And, and so sometimes people wonder, like, do they just have like this, you know, golden touch in terms of creativity? But when you actually peel back the curtains and see what's happening behind the scenes, it's, it's a series of dozens and dozens or hundreds and hundreds of tests, you know, learn, rinse, repeat over and over again. 
And so it allows us to just keep learning and learning and learning and testing and testing. And that's how we've been able to, you know, kind of stay out in front and consistently put out, um, you know, super high quality content that, that drives performance for our clients. Yeah, and I feel like a lot of creative companies are trying to arrive at that balance between arts and sciences where they want to do great work, but they do want to somehow integrate the data and integrating data and analytics into something that's so creatively driven seems paradoxical, but it really isn't. Could you talk about the approach to data? Like what are some of the metrics that matter when you are approaching a creative campaign? Like what are you, is it demographic data? Is it pop culture data? Is it what, what's trending at the time? I feel like a lot of creative agencies get lost in, in data and somehow are the victim of analysis paralysis, but how are you guys able to pick the metrics that matter? Yeah, that, that's a that's a really great question. So it kind of it kind of depends on what stage of the process you're at. So, for instance, um, when we are in the very early stages where we're just um, coming up with concepts and writing scripts, we will we will do. I guess it, it, the hardcore data people would not consider this data analysis, right? Um, you know, they're the, my statistician friends would all would all cringe at this, but it actually really, really works. It's super effective. And all you have to do is take your script out and read it to 10 different people, film their faces as you're reading it to them, and then go back and make what we call a laugh graph. And that's where, that's where you, you've identified, you've broken your script up into all these little sections and and then you're scoring each section based on the reaction that your listeners um, are having. And so, you know, if somebody is is looking at their watch, then it's probably going to score a zero. But if someone is actively engaged at that point, then it'll be a one. And then if they're smiling, you know, it's a two. And if they're laughing, it's it, it's a three. And so we create this laugh graph that allows us to um, it, it it allows us to kind of pick apart the script bit by bit and identify, okay, here are the areas that are working. Here are, your, here are the areas that might be problematic. And then we can dive in and we can workshop those problematic areas until we feel like they're performing at a higher level. And so that, that starts, you know, long before you've filmed anything, long before you've cast any actors, long before you've, you know, uh, uh, done any costumes or sets or, or anything like that. Um, and, and then you can continue similar tests like that all throughout the process. So you can test, um, you know, before you go live, you can test the titles of your videos. Um, you can test thumbnail images for, for your videos. You can test several different intros. You can test calls to action. Um, there's all of these different components of the video that if instead of just taking your best guess and going to market, if you take the time to to actually test and iterate through those, then you kind of get this compounding effect where if you get, you know, through your title testing, you get, you know, let's call it 30% better click-through rates. Um, and then through your call to action testing, you get another 20% um, better click-through rate. Then all of a sudden it's, you're compounding. And, and through all the compounding, you end up with a campaign that performs exponentially better than if you had just taken your best guess at it. Right, right. I love the idea of the laugh graph. It's kind of like how stand-up comedians will test their jokes on the road for weeks and develop and exactly. iterate and then finally put a special together. That's really exactly. cool. Exactly. 
Yeah, we we found that it's much, much easier to teach a comedian how to sell than it is to teach a marketer how to be funny. And and so we uh we use a lot of comedians in our in our creative process. And so of course, like you mentioned, that is the process for them. It's it's write it and then go test it. Write it, go test it, tweak, test, tweak, test. And and they don't think of themselves as you know data people, but they're essentially following the exact same process. And so we just apply that same process in every part of the creative process that we can figure out a way to do it. Yeah. Yeah, because I feel like a lot of people have this this false notion of something like, let's for instance, it's something creative or like a stand-up special. They think it just kind of arrives out of thin air or people just write it in one shot. They don't realize that a special that's laugh after laugh after laugh is comes from a lot of kind of rinsing and repeating and data and <laughs> that stand-up comedians have to take on the like every joke has to be audience tested it's it's, it's pretty yeah, interesting yeah that, that, that's exactly right it's always kind of shocking to people when they hear that you know a, a two to four minute ad that we put out usually takes us six months from start to finish to to produce that and and at first blush it's like six months, like, you know, I could turn that thing out in, in a month or, or whatever. But what they don't see is that behind the scenes, there is so much testing and iteration and, and rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat. And the, the amount of work, just like you mentioned with a stand-up comedian, you know, when you see Jim Gaffigan stand up there and deliver his 45 minutes of polished comedy that has the whole audience rolling, you know, that's ignoring the thousands and thousands of hours that he spent at open mics and clubs, you know, uh, workshopping those jokes to find out what works and what doesn't. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, it's the kind of unsung heroic element of, uh, <laughs> of that entire process. So that's one right. thing that seems to be synonymous with a lot of your work, like namely poopery and uh, squatty potty, other than, you know, both having poop in common, is they both really, really do push the envelope in terms of uh, in terms of humor, and they're so just outrageously disruptive. And I remember reading in the book that there is an element of fear when you're first launching it, like, oh, is this is this going to work? Because when you're doing something like that, there's you're kind of seemingly walking a tightrope in terms of if it works, it's going to work unbelievably well. But if it doesn't work, it can go so hard, so left, so fast. Um, could you talk about how you're able to kind of mitigate the risk when you're taking those larger creative risks and and the implications of doing that with a client and kind of guiding them through it and the trust that you have to build in order to make that happen? Yeah, it's, you know, all that testing that we just talked about, a lot of that really does help us mitigate because part of the the creative process is, um, you know, we always say push it until it breaks. And, and, and what we mean by that is we do cross that line. Like we, we, we get crazy, we get wild, we, we cross the line, we take it too far. And only by doing so are we able to identify where the line is because we, we can push it and then go test push it and then go test and we keep finding, okay, where have we taken it a step too far? Where, where have we, you know, where did, where does it break essentially? And then in those areas, then we pull it back. And, and so it, it helps us, it puts us in a position to where we can take creative risks, but most of the creative risks get identified early in the testing process. And so it doesn't become like, 
you know, a massive PR nightmare for us or for our client because we're catching things early in the process and, and adjusting on the fly. That makes sense. So I'm really curious as to what your creative brainstorms look like in terms of structure or a, or a lack of structure. What do what does a was it, what does a brainstorm at Harmon Brothers usually look like? So usually when we're developing concepts, we ask our writers for the first pass to to develop their concept in a vacuum, meaning we we want to eliminate any groupthink for the first pass, and so. For instance, we'll, we'll put four writers on, on any given project and each writer will work in a vacuum and they'll come up with their own individual concept, their own individual script, go as wild as, as they want to go. And then what we'll do is we'll come together in the writing retreat and um, most people in the, in the industry, when I tell them this, they, they just can't even begin to wrap their heads around it. But... I hear the script for the first time at exactly the same time that my client is hearing the script for the first time. So I'm literally sitting next to my client and we're both hearing these, these scripts and these concepts for the very first time. And so their raw reaction to it is happening at the same time that my raw reaction is, is happening to it. And, um, and, and what that allows us to do is we see these, four concepts and scripts that were all created in a vacuum and then we can identify okay what is working what's not working what are the strong elements of these uh, what do we need to what do we need to set aside what do we need to throw out and so we workshop that and we we basically identify what we kind of call like the backbone of okay this concept is going to be the backbone of, of this script and then the four writers will all come together and jointly work around that single backbone and and essentially make rewrite the entire script around that backbone but working jointly and so sometimes um you know sometimes we're we're pulling jokes from multiple scripts bringing them all into to one sometimes we're we're starting fresh there uh, but the idea is that we're bringing all those best ideas together uh, to to kind of maximize what what we end up with, and and because the client is there as we're going through that process, we never have to, you know, quote unquote, sell our clients on on a creative concept. Um, instead, they're there with us, talking through the pros and cons of of, of you know the the various scripts and various elements. And so when we walk out of those writing retreats, we usually have really, really good alignment between us and our clients. We're both on the same page. That's so interesting that you bring your clients in that early in the development process. I feel like a lot of ad executives would cringe at that idea, but I would imagine it not only saves a lot of time in unnecessary meetings and back and forths and like that, but it also really makes your clients feel like they're a part of your team and vice versa. It's it's definitely an interesting. It, it takes a certain level of bravery and trust in your people, though, obviously, and it feels like that's a huge part of your culture. Yeah, er, early on, I remember I had a I had a couple of moments where I was like, I haven't even heard this script, and I have my client flying in, and I have no idea if this is going to bomb. I like it. It really felt super scary, but like you mentioned, the process has proven itself time and time again to be so incredibly value, valuable to the point where like these writing retreats have kind of grown a reputation um, 
where we get asked all the time, like, hey, can I just be a fly on the wall at the writing retreat? I, I just want to see this happen. Um, so company investors are begging to come. We get board members who want to come. And so what we had to do is we had to create a hard, fast rule for our clients that says, look, you can bring up to three people, no more than three people, because you know, once you get you know, lots of cooks in the kitchen, it turns into like committee and it, and it just kills the process. So we tell them up to three people, and those three people have to have full sign-off power on the script, and they have to have full control over the future of the brand. So usually it's the CEO and CMO um, that, that are there. And, and the reason we do that is because we can't have a script get developed at the writing retreat and then go back and, and go back, okay, now let me go show it to my superiors. And then the superiors weren't part of the process. They don't catch the vision, et cetera. And it just kills the whole process. So we, we, we have pretty strict rules around, around those, those writing retreats. And they've proven just incredibly, um, incredibly effective at one, coming up with great, great creative ideas and two, getting perfect alignment between us and our clients. Very cool. And the writing retreat for those who haven't read the book is you guys will take your writers and it'll be, it'll be about two days where you're in a location. That's a little off the beaten path, like a cabin kind of. Yeah. Yeah. We, we usually go up to Sundance, you know, the, the Sundance film festival is pretty famous for, uh, uh, you, you know, for being kind of a creative haven. And, and so we'll go up to Sundance, we'll rent a cabin. We'll go lock ourselves in the cabin for, uh, for two days. And, and one of the, one of the kind of the cheeky, but effective things that we do is when we're in the middle of the creative process, everyone has to put their cell phone in a bowl. And, um, and the rule is if you have to go get your cell phone out for a text or a call or an email or whatever, then you've got to throw 20 bucks in the bowl. And, and at the end of the two days, we, we raffle off whatever cash is, is in the bowl. It's usually not much. You'll usually end up with, you know, 40 or 60 bucks or something. Cause there's always an emergency or two that someone needs to deal with. Um, but for the most part, um, you know, people actually find it really liberating to set the phone aside and really get hyper-focused into the, into the creative process. That's awesome. That's really, really cool. Yeah. I mean, it makes a ton of sense. Cause I mean, it not only distracts from the, the, the task at hand when somebody's looking at their phone, but the sheer act of looking at your phone, even if you have enough restraint to not look at your phone, the distraction of thinking, should I look at my phone? Should I not? That alone takes you out of the moment. So the, the whole bowl idea is really, really brilliant. Um, another thing I'm curious about is as you guys began to grow, it seems like there was no dip in quality, possibly even the opposite. How were you guys able to balance growth with retaining quality and the, the things that made you guys as unique as you were? Growth is a relative term, right? So we have not taken the approach in our agency of, you know, trying to become, um, uh, what would I call it, like a volume type play where we maximize the number of our clients and maximize the number of our campaigns. And therefore, we have to maximize the headcount in, in the agency. Instead, we've tried to take um, a little more of a boutique approach where, um, where we keep quality really high. Um, we have. I mean, we've definitely grown. We're up to five creative directors, whereas in our early days, you know, Daniel was our only creative director. Um, 
And so, you know, we definitely have the capacity to do five times more campaigns now than, than we did back in our early days. So we have grown, but we're still, you know, six years into this, we're still a relatively tiny agency, right? You know, there's, there's, probably, uh, there's probably about 40 of us now. And how do we keep quality up? It's like each one of those five creative directors has kind of gone through an apprenticeship of working under and with Daniel um, to develop their, their skills and their abilities until eventually they get to a point where Daniel trusts them with, with their own projects. And then, and, and so he'll, he'll, he'll set them off to do their own project. But even then <clears throat> we have creative, uh, I don't want to call it controls. I want to call it more like creative support built in for each creative director and each creative team can come back to what we call the brain trust. You know, we stole that term from Pixar. Um, if you haven't read Creativity Inc. Oh, I have multiple it, times. I, it was the one yeah, book that I, awesome, hi- right? I highlighted it so much. It was, it got to the point where I'm like, why am I even highlighting anymore? Like 90% of this thing has highlights. I, sh- <laughs> yeah. I should just stop highlighting. We stole that term from them. And, and what we do is we have our creative brain trust where any creative director, any creative team, not only can they come on an impromptu basis to the brain trust for help and for input, but we actually have built-in checkpoints all along the creative process that, that essentially say, no matter whether, it doesn't matter if you feel like you need it or not, this point in the process is a, is a brain trust check-in. And, and so we do those brain trust check-ins and that allows for um, all of the other creative directors and even Daniel to get his mind in every single creative pro- uh, project that's happening, even though Daniel's not necessarily, um, it, you know, the one getting his hands dirty on every single project. Um, he's able to take his experience and skills and everything and help all of the other creative directors achieve that same level of success. Yeah. No, it's it's fascinating, and I think it really it seems paradoxical to have a lot of structure in place when you're doing something that creative. But sometimes those they're not constraints, but those procedures can not only make the creative better, but also just enable freewheeling creative to happen. And I feel like a lot of anybody who's worked in an agency has probably at one point been the victim of too rigid of a creative structure. But it sounds like you guys are able to kind of remove the rigidity and the painful elements of having a structure in place by giving more creative control to your creatives. And it seems like everybody, the, the brain trust notion going back to Pixar, a key element of that was a director would have the script or the storyboards or whatever. And then the brain trust of other directors would look at it and give their unvarnished feedback. But the, the main director did not have, was not required to integrate that. That's feedback. correct. So that same that, level that's... of creative control, is that how you guys operate? Yeah, we, we tried to mimic that exactly in, in the way Pixar does it. So, for instance, the brain trust's main function is to point out problems, um, to, to point out weak areas, not necessarily to prescribe fixes. Now, that doesn't mean that the brain trust can't, you know, come up with ideas and brainstorm around, hey, have you tried this? Could you try that? This might work. That might work. But at the end of the day, the creative director on any given project has the ultimate decision on, okay, I've taken all this feedback, I've heard all of this input, now this is what I'm going to decide to do 
on how I want to address this, this particular issue. And, and Daniel's really good about um, trusting the creative directors to, to make those final decisions. In fact, I can't think of a single time in our history where, where Daniel has, has kind of come in and vetoed a creative director's decision or, or overridden it. Um, I, it, man, it's possible that it's happened at, at some point in our six year history, but I honestly can't think of a single time. That's huge. It, in almost every single situation, you know, the brain trust will consult, um, you know, give that feedback. And then Daniel will look at the creative director and say, Hey, I trust you. That's just we'll so good for the soul of a creative person is to not have their ideas shot down. Yeah. That's enormous. It, it's huge. It, one thing we've learned over and over again is that creativity thrives in environments of trust. It's when, when a creative director hears from Daniel, you know what? I believe in you. I trust you. Go make this happen. Then even if it's a new creative director who has limited experience under their belt, they'll always rise to the occasion and they'll go create something amazing. Yeah, no, that's that's a, it's a huge part of the process. And I feel like it's something a lot of companies get wrong. Um, when it kind of a geeky question, when it comes to project management, do you guys have any go-to tools or procedures? Like, are you guys Basecamp users? Do you abide by Kanban or Waterfall or any sort of, you know, pre-existing protocols? What are either the tools or approaches that you guys have? You know, early on, we tried a couple of times to roll things out company-wide. Um, and the only thing that ever stuck company-wide outside of <clears throat> email was Slack. Um, and, and all of our other attempts around management tools and stuff, um, when we tried them at the company-wide level, it was just, uh, it was like pulling teeth, going to the dentist, whatever you want to call it. We, we could only get limited adoption. And so what we ended up doing was we, we allowed each individual team to, uh, to choose for themselves the method that they want to use. So for example, um, our, our our biz dev team uses a CRM. I think the CRM that, that they landed on was copper. Um, and um, we have our funnel team uses Basecamp, And then our video team, oh, they use one. I'm having a brain fart. I can't remember the name of it, but it's very specific to, um, to video production. Um, and, and so it, it has both pros and cons. The con is that all these systems don't talk to each other. And so we, we don't get the, uh, the cohesiveness across the teams that, that would result if we had one single system to rule them all. But the flip side of the coin is that because we're allowing each team to use what works for them, they're actually adopting it and using it. And, and so ultimately, I don't know if it was the right decision or not, but ultimately that was the decision that, that we made. And, and it seems to be working decently okay. You know, if, I imagine if, if we scaled up to become a huge agency that we, we might hit some walls with that, but it, you know, the small size we're at seems to be working. Cool. <laughs> Last few questions. Um, are you familiar with George Lois, the ad executive? I'm not. He, uh, he's written a bunch of books. He, he was in that, I forgot the name of this fantastic documentary about advertising. That was actually interesting. 
And uh, he was like an OG creative. Um, okay. He had this kind of ritual where every Sunday he would go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art all day long. And he would do it uh-huh. as a means to kind of replenish his creative brain because he believed that no idea existed in a vacuum. So he just yep. would kind of – he called it filling the well. He would just fill his own well with creative ideas. And a lot of his his major campaigns came from stuff that he saw in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Do you guys have any either individual or internal company-wide protocols for remaining on the pulse of either culture or creativity? Is there any way that you guys refill your own well, so to speak? Um, from a protocol level, no, we haven't had to implement any any type of protocol. But I can tell you from a cultural level, yes, like 100% yes. So se- several things here. Um, uh, there's a lot of people in our company who – um, who are either um, already stand-up comedians or who are um, in the process of, uh, you know, becoming stand-up comedians. And right down the road from us is the Dry Bar Comedy Club, uh, which uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Dry Bar, but it's probably the fastest-growing comedy brand in the world right now. It's it's on pace to catch up to brands like Comedy Central and 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 Saturday Night Live. It's booming. Um, and what it is, it's, it's a comedy club that focuses on family friendly standup. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, um, by having the club right down the road, we're able to not only mix and mingle with a lot of comedians from dry bar, um, but just having the exposure to all of their, their content, all the sets that, that they're doing. Um, in addition to that, we've got a couple of improv comedy clubs, um, right down the road, uh, from us. We've got several people involved with those, um, you know, shows every weekend. And then on top of that, um, our team just consumes an enormous amount of media, you know, be it um, YouTube videos, Facebook videos, movies, podcasts. Um, and, and part of the culture around the office is that, you know, I know some businesses kind of frown on people, you know, using social media and, and watching YouTube videos and, you know, playing on the clock so to speak and like here that's free reign man um the 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 more the the better and so you know usually several times a day people will be gathering around somebody's screen to all laugh at a at a youtube video or something that they found uh, and so those are kind of um you know several of the ways that our team is just constantly consuming and mm-hmm. and 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 getting new ideas and then the ability to just get to write on like on so many of our projects, it's the process of writing on one project can kind of prep you for the next one. And so it, it's, it's like bringing the two worlds of consumption and creation together. And as long as you're doing a lot of both, then, then it, keeps the, it keeps the creativity fresh and new. Great, very cool. So I know uh, we had mentioned the Pixar book, Creativity, Inc. The, yep. the uh, Poop to Gold book mentions Good to Great and Start With Why. Other than those, yep. any other essential key reads that either helped your helped your company either from a creative or business perspective? You know, another phenomenal one that, that we reference all the time around here is How to Build a Story Brand by Donald Miller. So it, it, the thesis of the book is that the most memorable messages on earth always come in the form of a, of a story. 
And, you know, th that's natural, right? Like human humans have passed information down from generation to generation through storytelling. That's what, that's the way it's been for thousands and thousands of years. And so our brains have become wired to remember stories. And, and Donald Miller argues that there's one specific format of storytelling that is kind of the, um, the most effective in terms of uh, engaging people and making it memorable. And that's the hero's journey. Mm. You can look at the top 100 grossing films of all time and something like 85 of them. I don't know the exact number, but it's something like that. Something like 85 of them followed this hero's journey. Format. Joseph Campbell. Yep. And so he, he makes this argument and lays out a framework of how you apply that to the world of branding. And, and to the world of advertising and how to bring the hero's journey um, into that messaging. And you can look back through our ads and all of our ads follow this, this hero journey format where the brand is not the hero. So if we're doing a, a chatbooks ad, chatbooks is not the hero of the story. The brand character is not the hero of the story. The customer, or in this case, the viewer who's watching that, is the hero in their own journey. And so, you know, if you think about Star Wars, Luke is the hero, Obi-Wan is his guide, and then Obi-Wan gives him a tool, you know, his lightsaber, and, and then calls him to action and says, okay, you know, go, uh, go defeat the, the evil empire. Or I guess the force is the tool, I, I, I should say. But, um, but that same format works in advertising. So with chapbooks, um, the viewer is the hero, our chatbook's mom, the character, is the guide, and then chatbooks is the tool that, that the guide gives to the hero and then says, okay, now you go be a hero in your own journey. And, and that format makes the, makes the ads amazingly memorable and, and it just engages with people at such a, a, just a core emotional level that, that they don't forget. That's fascinating. The idea of making the viewer the hero of the story as opposed to easily be most people would probably think, oh, we got to make the character the hero, but engaging the audience as the hero. That's that's pretty interesting. Yep. It's a subtle tweak, but holy smokes is powerful. Awesome. Well, on that note, Benton, this was a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Of course, man. I, uh, I'll definitely send you a link as soon as it's uh, as soon as it's ready to go. Fantastic. Cool. All right, man. Thank you again. Really, really. Uh, Love your work and looking forward to see what you guys do next. Hey, I really appreciate the invite. Thank you for having me on. Of course. My pleasure. Thanks, Ben. I'll All talk right. to you later. Stay in touch. Bye. Bye. All right. Really, really had a great time with this conversation with Benton. I personally love to geek out about the creative process and was really fascinated to hear how they do it at Harmon Brothers. Anyway, here, as always, are some of the key takeaways from this conversation with Benton Crane. Number one, the most effective creative collaborations usually start in a vacuum. So in the beginning stages of every video they create at Harmon Brothers, four separate writers are tasked with writing four separate initial scripts. No exchanging notes, no brainstorming with each other. Each writer writes their script completely on their own in a vacuum. Next, 
the client is called in for a reading of each script. Until this moment, no managers or higher-ups in the agency has seen or weighed in on any of the scripts. They're presented to the client as they are in their first drafts. This may seem like a huge risk, but the clients love it because it allows them to get involved in the raw creative process. And the writers love it because it gives them the freedom to do their job and get their ideas out in their rawest form, unencumbered by the management, or dare I say it, micromanagement of other managers who can water down their ideas substantially. Number two, test everything. Every Harmon Brothers campaign undergoes an insane amount of testing. For instance, in the conceptualization stage, the initial script is read to 10 semi-disinterested people. During the reading, their facial reactions are captured on video. A scorecard referred to as the laugh graph correlates the reactions to each part of the script in order to gauge whether or not the jokes are funny. It's a pretty interesting testament to the lengths that Harmon Brothers will go to to ensure that every single joke in a video works. And when you watch their videos, you can tell. Number three, learn from Pixar and create a brain trust. Harmon Brothers operates with a Pixar-style creative brain trust where other writers and creatives will weigh in on scripts, storyboards, and shoots as they're developed. The brain trust exists partially to identify weaknesses and to find opportunities by giving the creators feedback from a trusted group of peers that they trust. But here's the thing. The writers and directors don't have to take the feedback or the notes. It's simply constructive feedback to make them better and they can use it or not use it. This is why it works. Creatives always want to be better and to do better work, but they don't like being told what to do. For more on this topic, I highly recommend reading Creativity Inc. It is by far the greatest single volume ever written on the topic of the creative process. Fight me. Number four, learn real storytelling like Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey. Benton spoke about how humans are hardwired to pay lasting attention to stories featuring a protagonist on a quest such as in Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey. As such, in Harmon Brother ads, the viewers are positioned as the hero, while the promoted product is the quote-unquote sword that slays the dragon or the bridge that stands between them and the prize. Typically, this is a happier life. Benton said that the Hero's Journey formula is a solid gold framework to approach ad writing with because no other archetypical structure makes as deep of an emotional connection with audiences. This is why it's important to learn storytelling. It's not just a cliche marketing tool. It is what connects all of us as humans. Anyway, guys, thank you as always for listening. Big thanks to Benton for taking the time. Really enjoyed this conversation. And if you enjoyed this episode, it would mean the world to us if you shared it with your friends and colleagues on LinkedIn. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And thanks again for listening to Damn Good Brands.